It's a great song. Uh, you know, if Christ isn't here when we meet, uh, we should be doing something else. If this is, uh, if church on Sunday morning is just you and I here, uh, you're okay, I think, and I might be okay too. But the thing that makes the difference is, is Christ is real and he's present. That's the deal. I was reading a book this week. This has nothing to do with the teaching, by the way. <laughs> reading a book this week uh, called Thieves in the Temple <clears throat> about the shallow uh, status of the church in the United States. And You know, churches, lots of them are full on Sunday morning. I think we've got about 1,500 mega churches in the country. But if you look at the way most of us live, we live like pagans. We live like those who don't know Christ. So when we meet on Sunday morning, guys, if Jesus isn't really here and his spirit's not really working, we're wasting our time. We ought to go do something else. So when we pray about, and when I pray, I know that when I teach, I have nothing to share. I have, I have nothing to offer. I know that the scriptures are true. And I know that when God takes the truth of the scripture by his spirit and he makes it real to us, then we're changed and we're transformed. And that's what we're after. We don't want to waste our time on Sunday morning. So... Anyway, great song, great introduction. Hey, a couple minor announcements. Sorry, house clean on my part. Is Hannah Cowell here this morning? Sorry, I haven't. Hannah's not here this morning. Okay. If you see Hannah, Hannah's from Topeka. Semi grew up in our house a little bit. She's a missionary to East Africa that this church supports. She'll be here again. She's here about six months or so for sabbatical. She's fundraising again also. So on another Sunday morning when she's here, say hi. Also, Steve Golden is here. If you know Steve, Steve's with us uh, very briefly, right up front. Say hi to Steve. Yeah, he leaves in the morning, headed back east. Also, if you are one of the elders or the deacons, please meet me right up front, right, right up here in this corner immediately after the service. Just uh, some minor housekeeping. If you're not loosened up already, I've got a joke to start with. Uh, Lincoln, <clears throat> Abraham Lincoln, you know, one no matter when surveys are taken, one of the most popular presidents of all time, of course. Really remarkable character. And, you know, most of the pictures you see, pictures, photographs of Lincoln, they're, they're taken in his last few years, in his years in office. And, you know, if you look at those, he's got the beard, he's got the chiseled features, you know. I think he's a handsome guy. You know, this strong, backwoods, don't he's smiling like, maybe not. Um, <laughs> strong, masculine features, you know. But, of course, most of his life, Lincoln was this tall, gangly guy. He was really considered homely and less than attractive all of his life. You know, he grew the beard as a means to improve his looks. Uh, Anyway, this is all for a point. Um, Lincoln tells the story. He was given something one time. We're going to talk about giving here in a minute. He was given something one time. He tells a story. He's out and about. And he sees a guy he doesn't know from Adam. The guy comes up to him and he says, Sir, I have something that belongs to you. And Lincoln's kind of taken aback. I don't know you. How could you possibly have something that belongs to me? And the guy says, Well, several years ago I was handed a jackknife. And I was told to keep this until I met a man uglier than myself. This is your knife. (laughs) Lincoln told that story himself, so he had a pretty good sense of humor. But uh, that's my intro for a morning on giving. Give me. Yeah. You know, two weeks ago, we were in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and you were so patient, really amazingly so, as I read through two chapters. I think it took about 10 minutes to do so. I'm not going to try your patience again this morning. But 
We're back in those two chapters this morning. And if you remember, we said the key word in those two chapters was grace. Grace, the the Greek charis. And so we talked about these were two chapters about grace giving, gracious kind of giving, a giving that reflects God's grace to us and the kind of grace he wanted us to have towards others. So two weeks ago when we were in this passage, we were answering the question, why should we as Christians, as those who know Christ, practice what Paul describes as this grace kind of giving? Why? We looked at several reasons for that, and I'll let you check the teaching online if you weren't here for that. This morning on round two, going back through the same passage, I'm not reading it all, we'll read just a little bit in chapter nine and make references elsewhere. But this morning we're asking the question, how? What does it look like specifically? What does grace giving look like? How do I do the kind of giving Paul's talking about? And on the why, if you remember, we've got two chapters in an epistle that are all about giving. That's all these two are about. But the focus was fairly narrow because when Paul was writing this letter, there was a very specific need they were addressing. This was to meet the needs of the Christian believers in Jerusalem. So we mentioned the fact that this wasn't about giving broadly. It was about meeting the needs of other people. It wasn't about church support. It wasn't about missionaries. It wasn't about a number of things. And so the focus on the why questions was fairly narrow. This morning on the hows, while this is still the same context and he's talking about how to give graciously to the needs of others, certainly the principles apply more broadly, more easily, than the why questions we looked at last time do. So 2 Corinthians this morning, we're going to ask, answer, ask and answer the question, how, what does grace giving look like? I hope you have a handout for a study sheet. We're in 2 Corinthians. I'm only going to read from chapter 9, verses 6 through 12, and I'm reading from the New, <clears throat> excuse me, new American Standard. Paul says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, and here Paul quotes Psalm 112, verse 9, He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Now, just FYI, I'm going to cover the hows. That's going to be point one. If you have the study sheet, you know that. I'm also going to cover a couple other points as well. But first, under the how, how do I give grace giving? What does gracious giving from God's point of view look like? There are three different Greek terms used 12 times in these two chapters that have something to do with being generous when we're giving. That grace giving is, in one word, it's generous. The first word used in the New American Standard, at least, is abound or overflow. In the Greeks, that's parasuo, and it means to exceed a fixed amount or to overflow. So when we think about giving on the generous end, Paul says, 
Grace giving looks like something that's overflowing. You know, if I take a cup and I'm going to fill it with water, I might be very careful and I might measure it right up to the very top and no more. I'd be very careful with the measurement. Paul says, no, grace giving overflows the cup. It doesn't think how little can I give, it thinks how much. It's an overflowing quality. So in chapter 8, verse 2, Paul said of the Macedonians, their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. It didn't look like they had much to give, but they overflowed any measurement that any one of them thought they might be able to give. Or in chapter 8, verse 7, he says, see that you abound in this gracious work. Your giving should be this overflowing, past the fixed measure kind of giving. In nine, chapter, eight, or chapter 9, verse 8, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, not measured out a little, but overflowing to you so that you will be able to have an abundance that will overflow to others. Have you guys ever seen at wedding receptions or parties or movies champagne fountains where the cups are stacked up and a fountain overflows and it fills all of them as they go down, one overflows to another? That's sort of the picture here. Verse 12 in chapter 9, the ministry of this service is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. There's so much thanks that thanks to God has that same character. It overflows because of the overflowing generosity. So grace giving should be characterized by this abundance. I'm not measuring out a little. I'm not trying to be stingy. I know that God's overflowed graciously into my life, and I'm trying to overflow graciously into the lives of others through my giving. The second word that has to do with generosity here is bountifully. Uh, The Greek there is eulagia, which literally means a good word. But the thought is that it's with this sense of blessing, that you're overflowing in a way that's meant to be a blessing to the person on the receiving end. So in chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, your previously promised bountiful gift, that gift of blessing, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift, as a blessing, not something less than that. And then in verse 6, he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You've blessed others and you will in turn receive a blessing as well. So Paul says our standard for giving is to be bountiful. It's to seek to be as much of a blessing to someone else as we can be or the work or whatever it is that we're supporting. And he says, likewise, when you express that kind of grace giving and bounty towards others, God turns around and pours more of that same grace or bounty into your life so that you can continue doing that same thing. You see a very similar thought in Luke 6, 38. Jesus there, sort of a variation on the Sermon on the Mount, says, Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It's like as much as you can get in there, that's how much God is going to bless you. The same way you've blessed others. Now... I have a brief caveat on this, uh, this verse and, and this principle. You will often hear these verses used by those in the church to suggest that you can somehow get God over a barrel. If you will give, then God must give back to you. And the more you give, the more God has to give back to you. And it's really, it's, uh, 
It's a perversion of what Paul is talking about here. You see here in the context, Paul says God is going to bless you. One, because he's just gracious. God's gracious and he gives us all kinds of good things. But in the context here, Paul says God wants to be bountiful towards you so that you can turn around and be bountiful towards others as well. In other words, there's no lust or greed or self-seeking nature here behind what Paul's talking about. If I give so that I can get more good stuff, I've missed the point. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what God's after. God's gracious and he gives to us even when we're stingy and miserly because he's gracious. But in this context, these verses are talking about having God's mind in being a bountiful blessing to those around me. So that I have this confidence that just as God's poured out graciously into my life, I'm supposed to turn around. And I'm supposed to have that same kind of effect in the lives of others. And I can trust God that even when I'm giving a lot, sacrificially, I'm not depleting God's reservoir. God's still able to bless me in the future so that I'll still have this abounding abundance so that I can continue to bless others. These verses are not meant to get God over the barrel so we get more of the good stuff from God. In fact, you know, later Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So Paul's not talking about money as the end-all or be-all. And I'm only saying this, you won't hear this here, but you will hear this on the radio, you will hear this on the television, you will read in the books, the popular books that are being sold in every Christian bookstore. It's a distortion of both God, the gospel, and the kind of grace-giving God's calling us to. God is gracious. He blesses us absolutely. In context, this is so that we can overflow and bless others as well. In fact, I think it's interesting, Luke 16, verses 10 through 13, Jesus there says, of money, if you're faithful in a little thing, you'll be faithful with much. If you haven't been faithful with a little thing, you won't be given the true riches. In that context, Jesus says money, that's the little thing. Money is the insignificant thing. It's not the primary thing. And the true riches God wants to give you, you're sort of in the testing grounds about the way we use our funds. Do we understand these are means to an end? It's not all about us. It's something God's using in our life so we can bless him, honor God, and bless others as well. It's means to an end. It's not all about me and about getting this stuff. You know when they say heaven is paved with streets of gold? That's because gold's not important to God. That's the concrete of heaven. For us, gold, give me gold, give me a million dollars worth of gold. God says, no, it's just stuff I throw down on the street for us to walk on. It's like gravel. And the scripture says elsewhere, what is valuable in the sight of man is loathed in the sight of God. We get our priorities upside down. It's not all about the money. Money is the little thing that we can use in a way that honors God and blesses others. But be careful what your view of this is, especially as you listen to teachings or read other books. The third word here Paul uses is liberally in the Greek hoplites, which simply means simple, open, generous-hearted. Three times in chapters 8 and 9, if you look at chapter 8, verse 2, Paul says of the Macedonians, do you remember he said they were poor on one hand, but man, did they give. So he says their deep poverty overflowed in their liberality. Their simplicity in giving, they really wanted to do it. That's what their hearts were about, and that's what they did. Chapter 9, verse 11, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. Again, you see motive on God's part. You're enriched for a liberal overflow to others. 
and 9.13, they will glorify God for the liberality of your contribution. Grace giving should be from a simple heartfelt desire to bless others. There's so much we could talk about on giving because we're in these chapters and and most of it, frankly, we're not going to get to. But one thing I did want to cover bases on here before we move on is how much is enough to qualify as grace giving? How much is enough? Is 1% enough? Is $10 enough? Is 10% enough? Is $100 enough? Every, Every Christian I've ever met has struggled with this to some degree or another. How much should I give? Again, you'll hear a variety of opinions on this, all cited from the Bible. The New Testament, God's word to the churches never specifies an amount, ever. It's not there. If someone's telling you a specific amount or specific percent, it's not in the New Testament. It's not written to the churches. It, It does not exist, which is sort of cool. Because God's saying, I'm gracious, and that's my measurement for you. Be gracious. How gracious is God to me? Wow. Amazingly gracious. How gracious should I be to others? Wow. I should be amazingly gracious. That's the measure. If you want to know how much is enough, gracious giving is enough. Now, (laughs) I will give you a little bit more than that, my my two cents for what it's worth. You know, most people in the church will say 10%. That's not a New Testament standard. It's an Old Testament standard. And I don't have anything against it. If you go to Genesis 14... Abraham gave a tenth. The tithe is literally one-tenth. Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. That's not under the Jewish law. There was no law. Abraham's measure of giving, the loot that they'd captured from the guys who'd come in and stolen law, was a tenth. That was a standard. If you go to the law, the Jews were required to give 10%, but that was just the first part of their giving. They actually gave quite a bit more than that when you figured in the other offerings and things that they were constrained to do through the year. So for the Jews under the law, 10% was the standard, sort of the minimum too. And I just suggest, I still suggest, having said all that, 10% is a minimum. 10% is a minimum. I would encourage us to give more than that. We're the wealthiest, even with all the financial difficulties we're in, guys, we're still the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. We have more stuff than anybody ever dreamed of 100 years ago, 50 years ago, you name it. We're spoiled. And so it's hard for us in our own minds to say, what's enough for us to live on? What does it mean to meet my needs, Lord, to pay the bills so that I can graciously give away? And we're not talking about this this morning either, but giving should be our first priority, not our last. But our own bills uh, come into effect on that, obviously. But gracious giving is the goal. So if I start with 10% as a minimum... That's a good place to start. Um, we as a family, we've tried to increase 1% a year. That doesn't sound like much till you get five years down the road or 10 years down the road. And if you start at 10%, you add 1% a year, it doesn't sound like much in a year, but keep at it and it adds up in a hurry. It's significant. And part of being generous on the front end of what God has blessed you with, graciously given you with, given to you, is that it constrains those other consumer choices I'm making. And that's a good thing. We're spoiled. All of us are spoiled. We've got so much stuff. We've got closets overflowing. We've got food we throw away. We've got trash, you know, people in third world countries would pay for if they could get it, you know. We're spoiled. So to have a mentality that says, God, I want to err on the side of being gracious and generous in my giving, that's a good place to start. 10% 
10% is a good place to start, just as a starting point. And guys, depending on the study, depending on when it was done, depending on the sample, a 2.5 to up to about 6% are the numbers. That's sort of the high and the low that you'll see about among evangelical Christians. That's the norm for giving. When we talk about 10%, really, I mean, it's a sham. Because Christians don't give 10%. We don't. Just as a group, we don't. We talk about it. Everybody talks about it. Very few people do it. So I would just encourage you on this whole thing about generosity. God has been so gracious to us. He's poured out his blessings on us so fully. Err on the side of gracious giving. 10% as a minimum. You know, if we're a typical group, I'll bet less than 20% of us are at 10% or more. Just that would be standard. So if you're not there and you feel convicted at all this morning, I hope you do, uh, pray about that. And, and just between you and God, Lord, I want to be like you. I want to be gracious. Help me to do that. If that means starting this year or next year, add 1% to what you're giving. That's a good start. But the model, the theme is be generous. And so some of that means spending less on ourselves, being proactive, giving from the first of our income. That's from Proverbs. And being generous, that's the thing. So Paul says, when we give, give generously. The second point, that's about generous, the three words on generosity. The B point on your outline, if you've got it, is give what you can. Look at verse 12 in chapter 8. It's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. When you go to give, don't lament before God that you have a hundred dollars, only a hundred instead of a thousand. Give the hundred. Don't lament that you've got a thousand, not ten thousand. Give the thousand. Don't lament that you've got a dollar, not ten. Give the dollar. Paul says it's acceptable to God according to what we have to give. We don't have to worry about what we don't have to give. I was in a church meeting many years ago, and a missionary to the Philippines was making an appeal for support. And it was, it was all legit. It was very good. Great, great work. And I had a brother come up to me in the hall afterwards and said, Mike, can I borrow some money? And I knew this guy, and I thought I knew where he was coming from. And I said, well, you know, what's the deal? He says, well, I want to give to this missionary, but I've only got a few dollars on me. And I quoted this verse, and I said, brother, it's acceptable. And this guy had almost no money anyway. He would, he would have been given everything he had. I said, brother, it's acceptable according to what you have. Don't worry about what you don't have. I did not loan him $50 that he didn't have and, and probably couldn't repay anyway. I just said, guy, give what you can. That's what Paul says. Give what you can. Don't worry that it's not more. You know, the whole thing with the, uh, the widow at the temple, Mark chapter 2, you know, Jesus and the boys are standing there and they're watching the guys come in. And some of these are high rollers and they're throwing the loud coins into their receptacle where everyone would know, man, that was a lot of money. Did you hear that? And they see the little old lady go in and she throws in tuppence, you know, the two coins that make one penny. And Jesus says in the eyes of heaven, she gave more than anyone else here. She gave what she had. And by the way, she gave everything she had. I'm not saying give everything away. You've got bills to pay. You're responsible. That's okay. But Paul says it's acceptable according to what we have to give. Don't worry that you don't have more. If we're faithful, God tends to give us more of what we're faithful with. 
But today, as you give, give graciously, give according to what you have. Don't worry about what you don't have. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, talking about this same collection, Paul had told them to set aside funds each week as they prospered. This sort of goes back to how much is gracious giving. That's, that implies a proportion. That, you know, you've got this much money that week, take a portion of that and set it aside. You're not giving everything away, but you're taking a portion of that, of what you do have, not what your neighbor has, not what you might have next year. You're taking a portion of what you have. So don't neglect to give because you think it doesn't amount to much. In heaven's eyes, a little may be the most, depending on who it's coming from and under what situation. The third one on giving here is to give with purpose. The Greek is proereo, means to bring forward or to choose beforehand. This is from chapter 9, verse 7. Paul says he is to give as he has purposed. This is an important one to me. You've thought about it, you've considered the options, and you've prayed. You know, with uh, no, what do we call it, no call, you know, you call and say to somebody, don't put my name on a no call list. We don't get as many of these phone calls as we used to, but, you know, ring, ring, pick up, I'm so-and-so with some maybe great Christian agency. We, we need your support. Will you give? And I would always say, you know what, send me some literature in the mail, and I'll pray about it. Because as a general rule, I will not give on the spur of the moment because it's not thoughtful. Somebody comes up and asks me, will you do something? Maybe I feel manipulated. Maybe I say yes because I don't want to offend them. That's the wrong reason. So Paul says, give as you have purposed in your heart. You've brought something forward you thought about, you prayed about. It's not spur of the moment. I have nothing against, by the way. We're on the plaza in Kansas City a month or so ago, and I see the same guy that I saw two or three years ago sitting on his his plastic drum. Nice guy, you know. I took something out of my wallet, gave it to him, had a nice conversation with him again. I have nothing against sort of almsgiving where we have something we know we can give that. But as a general rule, Paul says you're supposed to be thoughtful, prayerful, you've considered, and then that's what you've brought forward and given. It's not spur of the moment. It's not under manipulation. It's nothing like that. Back in 1 Corinthians 16, 2 again, put funds aside weekly. That was intentional. They were thinking about, I got this income this week, that was intentional. You know, also, just related to intention and forethought, they were a cash uh, economy. You know, they weren't writing checks back in the day. They didn't have credit cards, and they weren't working by the month or whatever. For you and I, intentional and thoughtful might be that twice a month we're writing a check because we get paid twice a month, or once a month we're writing a check because we get paid once a month. But it should be intentional as you're doing it. You know, normally when I sit down to pay bills and I've got my checks, the giving is the first thing I do. It's something that's intentional. We do it as the funds come in. It's the first thing we do. But it's intentional. We're thinking about it. We're praying about it. You guys know as a church, we try not to make much of money generally, not because we don't think it's important, but because in a culture that has made much of money and in a culture in which churches often make money, the bottom line, we don't want to come across that way. That's why we don't take a collection during the service. You know, the boxes in the back, we hope you, you give regularly. That's good for you and it's certainly good for the church. 
but it should be intentional. And it is a worshipful act. You know, we are giving something back to God that he's given to us. It's an act of worship. And for a lot of churches, that's why they have the collection in the service as an act of worship. It's part of their worship service. Again, we're simply wanting to avoid the appearance of something that we think has become normative in the church culture, and we want to avoid that. So, So Paul says, give as you have purpose. So how do we practice grace giving? We give thoughtfully about what we've considered and prayed about. It's intentional. Uh, This last one in this group, cheerfully, from the Greek, hilaros. If you hear anybody teach about this, they'll tell you that's the root for hilarious. It can also mean, uh, have an attachment to mercy. But in New American Standard, it's translated cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. God wants us to give without some, Paul says, grudgingly or under compulsion. Have you ever asked someone for something? Uh, Maybe a sibling or a friend. It could be money, could be help, could be time, could be about anything. And you just get the sense they really don't want to give it. And they drag their feet and they prevaricate, and they say one thing and another, until you finally get the picture. They don't want to help me. They don't want to, and you finally say, forget it. Because you don't want it that way. And that's what Paul is saying here. God's saying, when we give, give cheerfully. Um, if I sit down to write my giving check, and I have a sense of resentment about how much I'm giving away and what I could do with that, that's a gut check for me. If I feel like, oh, I've got to give to them and I really don't want to. Or if I feel like, look how much money this is and what I could spend this on and I I start to begrudge it. That's a gut check for me. And this does happen to me (laughs) more often than I'd like to confess. Kathy and I try and be generous and hospitable, but I'm telling you, you still come to that time when you think, oh man, you know, all the other things I think I need and things I could do. That's a gut check. So that if I know I'm not doing it cheerfully, I confess that to the Lord. My heart's in the wrong place. Lord, show me your perspective here again. Help me to have your heart in this again. I don't want to give with a bad attitude. Now, the truth is, obedience is still a good thing. And even if my attitude and my heart aren't entirely in the green zone, I still write the checks. Because I think God still values obedience. But I want my attitude to get in the right place too. I want to give cheerfully. God says, practice our grace giving cheerfully. So to sum up, grace giving should be done generously from what we have according to a proportion, purposefully. We've thought about it, we've prayed about it, and cheerfully from the heart. If you have a study sheet, I'm shifting gears dramatically here. This goes to a totally different uh, subject here in this uh, text, but how to oversee grace gifts. Paul's very careful about this. If you look back in chapter 8, verses 16 through 21, Paul says essentially this, guys, Titus is coming. And with him is this well-known brother. He's coming with him. And and here's another brother coming that you know well. And, And then I'm going to come later. And all of us brothers that are known by one way or another, these churches, we're going to take the collection and then we together are going to take it to Jerusalem. And we'll sort of be keeping tabs on each other so that you don't have to worry that we've said those poor guys in Jerusalem need the funds and then we take the funds and we go spend it on a Roman holiday or whatever. 
So Paul says, no, we have regard not only to honor God, but we have regard for what's considered appropriate in the eyes of men. We don't want to be subject to a charge that we raise these funds for one thing and then we use them for ourselves. So Paul says, basically, we're covering all the bases. We're going to have all these guys involved. No one's going to be able to pinch pennies. You can, you can rest assured that the money we're raising, it's going to go exactly to what we told you it would. And we've got this plural number of trusted brothers all overseeing that grace gift. So rest assured, it's okay. You'll see some groups, often nonprofits, will have an annual audit that they'll make available to anybody who supports them. And it's for this reason of transparency. They're saying, hey, this is what we took in. This is where it went. This was our goal and our priorities. And we're being transparent. We're showing you everything. You know, a lot of Christian uh, parachurch or nonprofits will belong to the evangelical financial something, EFCA or CECFA, I forget now. Anyway, if you belong to that association, you agree to seven or eight criteria under which your organization will be run. An annual audit's one of them, but there's a number of other things. And it's just so that if you go to that website and you think you're, you're going to give to support something, if you see that logo in the corner, they're telling you, hey, we're practicing transparency in the disposition of your gifts to this group. And we're, we jump through these hoops to make sure you guys know the money's really going where we said it was. And that's a good thing. At Lion and Lamb, we try and be careful about this for all kinds of reasons, uh, for individual sakes as well as the church corporate sake. Every Sunday after service, at least two men count the money that's given in the giving box. They fill out a little receipt and they both sign it. That receipt is given to another person who also gets the bank statement. And those weekly receipts are compared against the bank statements, the deposits that were made each week. And then the leadership board gets the financials every month and goes over all those again. And it's not because we don't trust any of the guys in the group. It's for transparency and it's for accountability and it's so that we're responsible. And it's so that no one person could be accused of anything. No, we're, pro we're practicing plural numbers of people all along the way. We do trust each other. This is the trust and verify, you know, principle. We are, so that we could say to anyone, no, two guys counted. Nope, we check that against this. Yep, the leadership board checked the, the financials again every month. So we're trying to be responsible in the way Paul said he was, honoring God on one hand, transparent before others on the other. So, if you're tempted to give to individuals or ministries that are less than transparent, and believe me, there are a lot of them out there, I just encourage you to be careful to think about that again. I'm going to wind down with the last point that's a little unusual, but it's when not to give. It's when and where not to practice grace giving. This is not out of this passage, but I felt constrained to bring it up anyway. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, not quoting the Bible here, but some good common sense, he said this, It is eminently desirable that we should none of us be hard-hearted, but it is no less desirable that we should not be soft-headed. I've talked to a lot of people, and they're soft-headed. And my deal is this, be hard-headed, then, then you can afford to be soft-hearted. Don't start soft-hearted, that's, that's a disaster formula. Most of the welfare system we have that's done so much damage to families in the United States 
It comes from soft-hearted mentalities, not hard-headed thinking. And this is a pretty good non-biblical injunction. First be hard-headed, then you can afford to be soft-hearted. Okay, so for instance, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12, he says, don't feed some people. These are Christians. And he says, don't feed them. That sounds hard-hearted, doesn't it? But he was hard-headed. And this was the deal, 3, 10 through 12. He says, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So some in the Thessalonican church, they were like the Millerites in the 1800s and like some Adventist groups in the 1900s. They believed, God bless them, that Jesus was going to return at any moment. I think he can. But they quit their day jobs. They used up their savings. And now they have no money and they have no food. So what are they doing? They're going to their Christian neighbors and they're saying, I gladly pay you Thursday for a hamburger today. You know, brother, can you spare a dime? And Paul says, guys, don't feed them. What? Joe's at my door and you say, don't feed him. Paul says, yeah, don't feed him. Because that guy should be out working. He should go back and work. That was the point. Don't feed him. You know, it gets worse, though. If you go to 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 through 11, Paul's talking about widows. Now, Paul says don't take care of some widows, guys. Did you know that? In the Bible, Paul the Apostle said don't take care of some widows. That sounds awfully hard-hearted to me. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. So in 1 Timothy 5, verse 9, Paul says a widow is to be put on the church list only if, only if she has met numerous criteria. She served the needs of the saints. She's washed their feet. She's the wife of one husband, etc. That means don't put other widows on the list. You know, in the early church, you see in Acts 6, widows who had no means of support, the church was taking care of them. That was seen as a good thing. It was a good thing. But in Ephesus, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, listen, there's some parameters for the gals that we put on that list. And these are some of them. And you get to verse 11 and he says, refuse to put younger widows on the list. Do not do that. The church is not to support them. Sounds awfully hard-hearted to me. But it was hard-headed. All of this goes to a point, and this is one of the last ones I just leave you with, which is this. Um, <clears throat> If we are soft-hearted but not hard-headed, our giving is often counterproductive and is actually going against the things that would be in the best interest of other people. We had a gal in a church this several years ago. The church helped a lot, a lot. She didn't think enough. She approached me one time and told me so. So I had her read 1 Timothy 5. I said, tell me what you think when you've read it. And she said, that's not me. And I said, you're right, that's not you. And we've tried to be as gracious to you as we think is wise and appropriate. And we, we feel if we did more, it would not be to your best interest. You know, if you have an, a, an adult, grown child that you're putting through college, I'd say, man, that's great. You're, you're blessing your child. That, that could be a great thing. You know, when they go off the four-year plan to the six-year plan to the eight-year plan and you're still supporting them, I'd ask you as a parent, do you really think that's in their best interest? Do you really think that's a good thing? They're an adult. Can they not work? Can they not pay their way through school? Can they not work part-time and go to school part-time? You see where I'm going? 
if we can work, if we can provide for our own needs, this is one of the principles, we should. And that's what Paul gets at. There's a book I was reading in preparation for this week called When Helping Hurts by Corbett and Fickert. And while I disagree with a little bit of their underlying theology, their, their bottom line was this. Lots of Christians practice soft-hearted giving, which is in fact not in the best interest of the people they're supporting. We support an orphanage in Haiti. And one of the things we've talked about a little bit is this. We want to support those orphans. We think God's in that, and they need help, clearly. But you know what? As the years go by, we want to be careful that our helping does not have a long-term hurtful effect on them by keeping them from developing the jobs and the businesses and the families that they should be developing. You know, Haiti's a challenge like many other parts of the world because they don't have a social, judicial, economic system that makes it easy, like we do here, to jump in and become productive. There's, there's a lot of challenges there. But one of the things, when you give to third world countries and third world country agencies, we have to have this mindset, does this in fact help them? Or does this, like many government uh, programs do, have an unintended negative consequence? We want to avoid that. So sometimes Paul says, God says, don't give to those needs you see there because it will have the unintended consequence not of helping them but actually of hurting them not of furthering my work in their life but of taking away from it so we want to be very gracious in giving and we want to be thoughtful and generous and proactive and cheerful but we want to be hard-headed about it as well we don't want to give in a way that ends up being counterproductive at the end of the day, guys, I hope that you guys feel compelled that God has been so gracious to every one of us here that we could do no less than be gracious to others in the disposition of the funds God gives us. I hope that we feel <clears throat> small and mean and miserly if we're not practicing grace giving because we are if we're not practicing grace giving. Let me just close with this. Grace giving is a call to act like our dad. You know, you'll see somebody physically that looks like their parent, and you say, man, he looks just like his dad. She looks just like her mom. Or you'll see someone acting like their parent, and you say, man, they act just like their dad. That's what people should accuse us of in our giving. And just very quickly, short list, God gave us the earth and everything in it, Genesis 1 through 3. He gives us, Paul says in Acts 14, 17, goodness, rains, crops, seasons, food and gladness. That's what God gives us, every one of us. Acts 17, 25, he gives us life, breath, and all things he gives us. James 1, 17, every good gift, every perfect gift has come down from above from the Father of lights. Every good thing you've ever experienced is God's grace gift to you and me. It's all from him. And last, John 3.16, God loved us so much, He gave us everything He had, not just what He had, everything He had when He gave us His Son. Based on God's grace giving to us, how can we not answer the how question? How do I give graciously? I give like my dad did. I remember as a young guy, teenager, didn't know anything. My dad said, son. <clears throat> my talks with my dad were always brief and concise. Son. You give the first 10% to God, 
you save the next 10%, and you live on the rest. Okay. That's what my dad did. Guess what? That's what I grew up doing. That's what my dad said to do, so that's what I'm doing. When we practice grace giving, we're, we're behaving like our dad. He causes his son to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's practicing goodness and benevolence in all the ways he can to everyone here. He's gracious. We can afford to be no less gracious. Would that people would say, I know they're Christians because of the way they give. I know there's something different. They've been transformed because they're not like they were before or they're open-handed or they're real about what they say they're real about. You know, God help us to be a washed up, lukewarm group of people on Sunday morning. God help us. Giving's a good way. It's a good hedge against that kind of mediocrity. Father, God bless us with your kind of heart, your kind of eyes for the people around us and the needs you want to use us to meet. Father God, may it be said of us that we look just like our dad because of the gracious giving we practice day in and day out. In Jesus' name, amen.